0: Good morning, everyone. If you can uh, find your seats, that would be great. Uh, You can always, well, they got rid of the slide. You can always connect. We encourage you to connect with us and show, um, just if you've never registered your visits so that we have your information, we always encourage people to do that. Um, You can connect there. You can go online as well, just to let us know who you are, how we can serve you, uh, how we can pray for you, Uh, all that's there. And so feel free to, to take advantage of that. We are in the midst of our series, Uh, called In the Lord's Sight, Um, and this series is through the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. You can go online, if you go to our live page, hit go live on our webpage. All the scriptures will be there. They'll be there all week. We change them on Sunday morning, sometimes Saturday night, but Sunday morning or Saturday night, we change the scriptures, but we leave them up all week so that if you guys have questions or you're thinking, trying to think through things, you can go back through the week and grab those scriptures, look back over them. Um, And and find that there. So so feel free that you can always do that. The reason that we've said week after week that we call this series In the Lord's Sight is because you'll see that all the way through both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. God is saying, and the writer of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is saying, hey, these people did what was righteous in God's sight, specifically the king's. These guys didn't do what was right in the Lord's sight. And so for us, it's really about how do we see ourselves and how do we think God sees ourselves? How do we see one another? That's really what the book of 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles really is about. Um, And that's an important thing because there's a lot of people that tell us how we should see God today. There's a lot of people who tell us how we should see ourselves today. But it's through the scripture, it's through God's word that he tells us exactly who he is, how we should see him, and tells us exactly how we should see ourselves, and he tells us exactly how we should see others. He doesn't mince words if you read the breadth and width of his word. Sometimes we don't like that. We don't like how he says to see things. Um, But that's exactly where we find ourselves. Just a historical background, the nation of Israel has split. They have north and they have south. We've looked at this, and we're coming through our series, and we're coming to the point where we're 200 years into this political battle. 200 years. I want you to think about that for a minute. Like our country's been around about 250, a little more, right? Like we're around 250 years. I mean, 200 years, and we'll see next week, we're going to see at the end of this message in the next week, that the northern kingdom of Israel gets completely annihilated. Slaughtered. God takes his hand off because of their wickedness, and he allows the Assyrian Empire to come in and just annihilate them. And they never exist as a nation ever again. It's it's just brutally sad, and he even tells them exactly why he does it. That's what we're going to look at next week. But it took 200 years to get to that point. That's how patient God is. God is so patient to give the same warnings over and over again. To say the same truths about himself, about you, and about me over and over again. And he's like, will anybody listen? I've been, do- I've been telling you for 200 years. Will you listen? Or will you just do what you want to do? So this morning, when we dive into the passage, this is kind of a play on words, but here's what I want you to think about. Don't waver or throw off restraint. Don't waver, question mark. Or throw off restraint. You're going to see both of these quotes when we read through the book. My sermon titles typically always come from the quotes that are in the scriptures. I don't make up my own titles. I just say, this is what God said. And this is a hard decision, right? It's hard to know when you're supposed to endure in jobs, in relationships, in things in your life, and when you're supposed to throw them off. And most of the time, we get it wrong. We get it terribly wrong. And it becomes very costly to everyone around us because we get it wrong. And we don't understand the long-term consequences of getting it wrong, the 200-year consequences of continuing to throw off restraint, thinking we're being righteous, we're doing the right thing, when in reality we should have not wavered and we should have endured and been willing to even maybe suffer for standing for what was right or we keep enduring in the wrong ways instead of throwing off sin and throwing off the wrong things, thankfully, we have the grace of God. Thankfully, that Jesus came to prove to us that God is forgiving and merciful and gracious, but he doesn't want to leave us in a place where we don't know the difference between when we're supposed to not waver and when we're supposed to throw off restraint. God makes it pretty clear in his word how we're to do this, But I'm just probably like you, I don't want to listen. I kind of want to decide for myself when I think it's going to work. And this is a term we use a lot here. It's a term, um, I've added one word to this, but it's a term that an author came up with a number of years ago, but pragmatic, theistic, moral deism. This is how we typically decide if we are going to waver, or if we're going to not waver and endure, or if we're going to throw off restraint. We ask the first question, does it work? Is this working? If it's not working, well then obviously I need to throw it off, I need to get something different. Because things are supposed to work for me. They're supposed to work in this world. And if they're not working, then that must mean that I don't know the right way so I need to try a different way. Can you imagine if Jesus did that on the cross? Be like, this isn't working, you're all dead, start over. He could have done that, he did it with Noah. Started over, I like, guess isn't working, wiped out the entire world and started over with Noah. Jesus didn't do that. He did not waver in the reality of the cost that had to be paid, the sacrifice that had to be paid for us. He didn't throw off the restraints of the cross. He actually put on the restraints on our behalf. Do you see how difficult this is? Like this is this is a hard thing, but most of the time we say, "Well, does it work?" The second thing we we say is, "How does it feel?" This doesn't feel like it's working, so I need to try something different. I gotta throw off the right thing. I gotta put on the wrong. I gotta. It's not working. Therapy, right? Like it's supposed to feel a certain way. Do you think Jesus was on the cross feeling good? You think he was hanging there, being like, "Man, this feels great." Loving it, just drive another nail in. Oh, yeah, baby, that's wonderful. I don't think Jesus was like, I think, now it says that he endured the cross for the joy that he knew was coming after his resurrection and our resurrection. So he said it's worth it to endure, right, and not waver because I know that these restraints will then free others that, that, that will pick up our cross and that'll lead to the freedom of other people. So again, does it work? Does it feel good? And then this is the last, once we get past those two, sometimes we'll ask, well, does it really hurt anybody? It's not really hurting anyone, moral. Like, it's no big deal. You know, it's best for, for everybody involved. It's just the best thing to do. Well, is it the godly thing? Well, I don't know, but it's just the best thing because it works and makes everybody feel a certain way. And then lastly, we put on God on the end, and we stick in Jesus' name on the end of it. That's deism. I, I, may, have made, I may not be even considering what God says is the right work. I may not even be feeling the things God want me, wants me to feel. I may not even have read the Bible to know the moral decision I should be making, but boy, I'm going to slap Jesus' name on the end of it. Because I know I don't want, I want to keep God at a distance. I don't want him to like have full control over my life, but I also don't want to throw him out either because I'm going to have to face him someday. And so I want to kind of keep him, you know, at arm's length. Don't, don't get too close and mess with my life. I'm trying to create a very pragmatic, feel good, moral life here, God, don't mess with it. And we keep him at arm's length. You see, this is how we typically make this decision. But what we're going to see this morning is God wants us to make the decision based on who he is. Not based on legalism, not based on license to do whatever we want, but based on who he is and who he's created us to be. So let's dive in. 2 Kings chapter 15, if you've got your Bibles, we will also be in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, no 27, sorry. Um, So you can go to 2 Kings, keep a thumb there, finger there, marking whatever, 15 and then and we'll do following and then 2 Chronicles 27 and following. In the second year of Israel's king, Pekah son of Ramalia, Jotham son of Uzziah became king of Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusa, daughter of Zadok. If you look in Second Chronicles, the author there adds this little thing. He did what was right in the Lord's sight as his father Uzziah had done. In addition, he didn't enter the Lord's sanctuary But the people still behaved corruptly. Oh, sorry, didn't enter the Lord's sanctuary. Let me pause. So you have, in the northern kingdom, there's this king called Pekah who comes to power. And we looked last week that they went through multiple kings really fast. They just kept killing each other. Like it was was like, well, that king doesn't work, so let's kill him. Oh, that king doesn't work, let's kill him, right? Like it, it was a mess. So now you've got this guy who's in power, and now you've got, Jotham, who comes to power, if you remember Uzziah, we looked at him last week, he started off really well as a king. This is how most people start off in their relationship with God. They're all excited, you know, God's great, Jesus is awesome, and then all of a sudden things come that make it hard to keep believing that. There's a cost involved, and you start figuring out that there's a cost to faith. And if I do these things, it's not going to turn out maybe the way I'm going to feel good or the way I want it to work out. And so Uzziah at the end of his life starts making, and we looked at that last week, and go back and listen, you can read it, some really bad choices to the point where he actually enters the sanctuary of God as a king, which was off limits. Only priests could go into the the sanctuary, but he's like, I don't care, I'm doing it. He goes into the sanctuary, God curses him with a disease, and he has to live outside the camp of the Israelites the rest of his life because he wouldn't listen to God. Some of you are dealing with consequences, that you're still dealing with, that are never going to go away. The question is, what are you going to do with that? Well, here's the best part. Uzziah obviously used those consequences not to create anger and bitterness in his son, but to create a love for God in his son, because his son did what was right and didn't follow what his dad did. Jotham is actually one of the most righteous kings of the southern Kingdom. Some scholars believe this was the height of the southern kingdom under his, you know, short 16-year reign. But th- this was one of the pinnacles, right? So you got a dad that really blew it. You got a dad that really went after pragmatic, theistic, moral deism, and a son who's like, yep, not doing that. Dad, thanks for warning me. I know I've gone to visit you with skin disease and see you, and, but man, I, I praise the Lord that, that I can now learn from your mistakes, it's a beautiful picture. And so here he is, but here's the problem. Uzziah does what's right, but the people still behaved corruptly. See, you can do all the right things as a mom, a dad, pastor. You, you, can, you can do all that you want, but in the end, people have the ability to make choices. they They have to make choices And typically they're going to make choices Based on pragmatic therapeutic moral deism And it hurts when you see them going down that road Every time it breaks my heart As a pastor I never celebrate when I see people Going this way It also says that yet the high places Were not taken away This is the problem they had in the southern kingdom all the time Remember in the northern kingdom They actually made two different altars They put two golden calves in each altar And called the golden calves Yahweh and God said, don't do that. That's why the northern kingdoms are getting ready to be slaughtered, because they never repented of that sin. For 200 years, he let them worship wrongly. I want you to think about that from generation after generation though, we're doing the right thing. We got two golden calves. That's where we go. That's Yahweh. For two generations, he says over and over again, they would not repent of the sin of Jeroboam who set up two golden calves. They would not repent of the sins of Jeroboam, like over and over again. God's warning them. He writes it down. He tells them every time and they're like, yeah, oh, we're good. We like how this system works. It's pragmatic. Makes us feel good. We don't have to deal with the Southern Kingdom. We got our own way of doing things." Instead of asking, "What is God's way? What does God say the way of worship should be?" And, "Oh, yeah, you got to go to Jerusalem. You got to go to the priest. You got to go to the temple." Like that's that's the way of worship written in the Old Testament. It's different for us today because of what Christ did. But that's literally what happens. And it says they they still, yet the high places were not taken away. The people continued sacrificing and burning incense on the high places. In other words, the people were really great at worshiping. The wrong way. Let me say that again. The people were really dedicated, really committed to worshiping. In the wrong way. I went to a conference this week with some of our partnering churches um, from the Midwest. And most of the talks I went to were really helpful, but one of the talks, and I won't say what it's about, but one of the talks, I, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I, I was about ready to come unglued. Uh, what was being said was so off that I was... I mean, it's still causing me to willies. I mean, and, I, I, and you know what's interesting? I learned some things from the other talks, but that talk... I've been in the word of God for the last three days, digging in to make sure that I'm not crazy with what was being said. See, the the false worship actually is helping me to figure out how to help you to be true worshipers. The false thing I was taught or that was taught to us as a group that's driving me batty and I'm about ready to go nuts is causing me to check my own heart and causing me to say, wait a minute, do I have high places Do I understand this correctly? How do do we get this wrong? How do I get this wrong? Versus the other talks I heard that I kind of agreed with. I'm like, oh, I could take that nugget because it'll work. Oh, I could take that nugget because that sounds pretty good. Makes me, maybe that would help. But the one that was like standing up in front of me, like, is that true? It's caused me to dig in. And man, I'm going to be dug into this for a while trying to figure this out. I've just, I've realized over the last three days, I'm like, this is going to take some time to, to unpack this. You see, that's what it should do. It's not, well, I need to just listen to him and throw off restraint and do what he says to do. And, and it's not, well, I'm going to show him, I'm going to endure and I'm going to stand up in front of everybody. And it's, it's pausing to say, okay, wait a minute, God, what is true? Is this guy right? Or is he not? What does your word say? What does it not say? You see, but that's not what we do. We just says, well, I mean, his plan, listen, his plan that he gave for pastors, oh, it's a beautiful plan. I mean, it would be so great for me. It would stink for you, but it would be really great for me if I followed his plan. It'd be great for my family if I followed his plan. I mean, it'd be unbelievable. Like, it would be so wonderful. None of the rest of our staff could follow his plan, but me as the top pastor, I could follow his plan. It'd be awesome for me but is it biblical? It worked for him, he said it saved his marriage. Okay, but did it save you because you built the wrong system to begin with and so now you made a coping mechanism, you're taking a pill to deal with the unhealth that you had before and now you're gonna have to take another pill to counteract that pill to counteract the pill of the pill that you took. you See, how that's, how that's how we do medicine today. We don't go back and ask, wait a minute, What's broken in the system? And so I'm unpacking it. It's the same way here with God's people. These are hard decisions we have to do, and you've got to know the Word of God. You've got to dig into this. You can't expect someone else to know it for you. You've got to dig in and say, did God really say, was this the declaration of the Lord? Or is this just some theological declaration from a group of people that think a certain way? Like, we've got to know And if you don't know this, this is God's love letter to his people. A love letter that tells us the truth because he cares. Isaiah and Micah, two of the prophets of the Old Testament, were prophesying during this time, warning the people, which is great. Probably Jotham listened to them. joshua he he listened to the prophets, I bet, which is why he was a good leader. It goes on and says this, in Chronicles, Jotham built the upper gate of the Lord's temple. He built extensively on the wall of Ophel. He also built cities in the hill country of Judah and fortresses and towers in the forest. He waged war against the king of the Ammonites. He overpowered the Ammonites. And that year they gave him 75 pounds of silver, 50 bushels of wheat, and 50,000 50, bushels of wheat, 50,000 bushels of barley. They paid him the same in the second and third year. So Joshua strengthened himself. You see, we read that, and the first thing we think... See, you got to learn to read the Bible and put pauses, okay? like it, you got to pause right here. Jotham strengthened himself. When you're considering whether you should endure something or whether you should throw off restraint, it's time to throw this off, typically we run to the wrong things for strength. We don't run to God. We don't run to his, his word. We don't run to his people. We run to all the wrong things. Wealth. Happiness, appeasement. Like, listen, the world sells us everything based on this'll strengthen you, this'll make you healthier, this'll make you smarter. Take this drug, take this drink. Drink some beet juice, drink, you know, some green juice. Drink, like, it's all this stuff. And at the end of the day, every one of them will tell you, well, you gotta do it because you just don't need a healthy diet. Oh, so maybe I should just eat a healthy diet. No, 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 just get a juice. Like, don't worry, don't do that. Like, like, these are the things that we do. And, and again, if you said, well, Joshem strengthened himself, look, because he got warriors and he beat the Ammonites and he built all this stuff. Look, God is very careful to say, you think Jocelyn strengthened himself by all these things? Wrong. Look at what God says. He says, he strengthened himself because he did not waver in obeying the Lord. His God his God not the Lord God Lord his God the the reason these things happen the reason he was able to be successful in life was not because he was chasing success see if you if you measure this way then guess what Jesus was a failure Jesus didn't take back the temple he didn't rebuild and he actually prophesied to the leaders I'm gonna tear down the temple and it's not gonna be rebuilt Wait a minute, Jotham rebuilt it all. That's how you strengthen yourself. Jesus is like, nope, you guys are trusting in the wrong strength. You see, it's so easy for us if we're not listening and saying, okay, what does it mean to obey the Lord? To say, God, what you say is right. It doesn't make sense. I don't know why we do it, but what you say is right. You know the joke we have all the time, one of my favorite books is Leviticus, the law is good. But most of you have no idea what Leviticus says and you have no idea why the laws in Leviticus are good for you. You've never thought about it. No one's ever taught you. There's not been a pastor that's walked you through. We've done it. But there's not been a pastor that's walked you through what Paul says, which is the law is good. The law does not save you. Doing all of Leviticus doesn't get you to heaven. It doesn't. But it's going to protect you from a lot of bad here. And again, we say simple things like don't eat bacon all the time because it'll kill you. God says pork's a bad meat. There's better meats. Don't eat pork. Now, in the New Testament, Peter saw all the animals come down clean, so we can eat pork, but you're still going to suffer the consequences of a pork diet. You just are. And you can suffer them and go to heaven and see Jesus, and it's beautiful, and I love bacon. I had bacon this morning, okay? But I understand the consequences every time I eat bacon. I'm not looking at it going, this is so healthy and wonderful, and it's not a pig belly. That's not what this is. You know, this is special pig super meat. No, it's a pig's belly, which is where all the, yeah, like if you think about it for a minute, it's like, ooh, gross, I'm eating that. But I still like it. We had a coronavirus from a bat. The Bible says don't touch bats. They're unclean. Stay away from them. Don't mess with them. Leave them alone. No, 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 we're going to research them. We're going we're to we're try to engineer them. Okay, great. Good luck with that. Like, all of these laws are there, and they're good. They're there for a reason. Jotham knew that. Jotham knew that God was good, that his laws, his precepts, the things that he wrote were good. And so as a king, he wanted to lead his people. Hey, don't waver on these obeying God things. Don't throw off the wrong restraints. Be restrained in disobeying God, but don't be restrained in obeying it. That's why the last of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then we want to stop there, because those are all the emotional verses, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, oh, that feels so good, and self-control, Ugh. yeah, that one I don't like so much, because that means my wife might have to put a lock on the refrigerator, you know, I don't, I might have to ask her permission to open it, and I you know, I don't want to practice self-control. I just want to do what I want to do. And I bought that fridge, and I put the food in it. So don't tell me what to do. It's what we do, don't we? That's our heart half the time. See, he strengthened himself, and we have obedience as a bad word today. Matter of fact, we sometimes even discourage people from being too obedient. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm scared that you're going to become legalistic. Well, do you think this obedience is making you better than other people do you think this obedience is is making you more saved than your neighbor no i just really love god and i want to obey him praise the lord let's celebrate that person not undermine them but we've been taught in our culture to undermine obedience to warn them that they're oh you're being self-righteous really i mean they might be but man i think it's a lot harder to be self-righteous in our culture today than it is just to throw off restraint and do what you want A lot harder. And if self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, then maybe we need to rethink what we're throwing off and what we're enduring. You see, we see obedience as almost weakness today. Someone that obeys and just does what they're told, we're like, oh, that's unfortunate. They don't understand what life's about. We love, we love to celebrate those who have figured out how to throw off restraint and get rich and powerful and influential. Those are the people we celebrate and lift up. We don't celebrate and lift up the people that have endured in a church for 40 years and given their life. No, we celebrate the church planters. Listen, I became a church planter because I'm too much of a wimp to pastor traditional churches. It's hard to pastor traditional churches. And I knew I'd get fired day one. It's hard. I've been in traditional churches. I saw, I was a part of transitioning a church. It's really hard. And I had a pastor tell me once, he said, Matt, be careful, don't fall for the lie. You will either pastor one traditional church really well in your life, or you will plant one good church in your life. That's it. Because you are a shepherd to the flock, you're not a hired shepherd. And you'll have to give your life. Best advice I ever got. And here... This is again what, what he realized. It goes on to say this. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah said this about the people. Jeremiah prophesies later, after the 200 years, towards the end of Judah. It says If you return, Israel, this is the Lord's declaration you will return to me. If you remove your detestable idols from my presence and do not waver, then you can swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Then the nations will be blessed by him, as in God, and will pride themselves in him, not in their pragmatic, theistic, moral deism. You see, Jeremiah is like, look, return to what's true, learn when to. to To not waver and and know when to throw off restraint. You've got to dig in and understand this. And the only way to do it is to turn from the way you're living and turn towards God. And then Christ is going to come. And then he says, look, the reason you're going to return to me is not for you. The reason you're going to return to me is because I have a bigger mission for your life to declare who I am to people not even yet born. To the nations you haven't even been to. That's, that's what he wanted to raise up Israel for in the first place, was to be a light to all the nations. He's like, I want you to represent me in a way that other nations look and say, well, we either got to kill them or get, go with them, because they're not going to bow to anything else, and they didn't do it. Hebrews in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, who we think probably was Paul, you got to remember, when Paul writes the letter of Hebrews, which I think it was Paul, but when the, when the letter was written, he wasn't writing to the church in Hebrew. Okay? He wrote to the church in Corinth, he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he wrote to the church you know, in Philippi. He didn't write to the church in Hebrew. He wrote to Hebrews who were in mixed churches. This letter is written to Hebrews to show them how do we deal with these Gentiles that seem to be throwing off the restraint of the Old Testament and worship with them. And how do we not waver and go back to the Old Testament law to think that's going to save us, but instead move towards the person of Christ? That's why Hebrews is written. For those types of people. So look at what he writes. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. What is that confession? If you read right before this, it's the confession that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament that was going to come and give his life. He was the perfect sacrifice instead of the temporary sacrifices of the Old Testament. That's what Hebrews talks about in chapter 10 before you get up to this point. And then he says, look at this. For he who promised... Jesus, God, is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. It's not just love. It's not just good works. It's both. That we promote both things. And then he says, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you understand that the Hebrews were wanting to stay away from the worship meetings because they were having to deal with idiot Gentiles? If you have not eaten pork your whole life and this new church is starting and you're a part of these churches and all of a sudden the Gentiles are bringing pork to the potluck, I don't don't know if I can be here. I mean, I got to have a church that offers a gluten-free alternative or I can't attend. These are the same problems that we deal with today. They get upset. And so the whole book of Hebrews is written to try to say, look, stay together. Don't stay together just to stay together. Stay together because you understand the word of God. Stay together because you understand who Jesus is and what he did. Stay together because you, you, you as Hebrews, guess what? You can actually teach these Gentiles why the law is good, but it doesn't save them. You can tell them, hey, look at how the Romans eat pork and look at all the trichinosis they have. Look at all the sicknesses and disease they get. They seem to have heart attacks a lot more often than we do. You can actually help educate the body of Christ on why these laws are not necessary to be saved, but why they're still good. That's your responsibility as Hebrews who know the Word of God, have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, because that was their whole education system. K through 12 was memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. And now you can be the ones in the new church start to tell them, you ready for this? How all of this is about Jesus. All of it. Every word, every letter. It's about Jesus, and we're so glad now that the nations, you Gentiles, are being brought in because of our obedience as Hebrews to surrender to our Messiah. You talk about a powerful church. Man, that'd be awesome to be a part of, but that's our role as believers, or should be. We're supposed to be encouraging one another. How? In obedience, in worship. Pick up Second Chronicles again. Chapter 27 says, As for the rest of the events of Jothan's reign, along with all his wars and his ways, note that they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king. Can you imagine that? You 25-year-olds in the room? Or 24-year-olds getting ready? Like, you're getting ready to be king? Like, you gotta reign and you got to rule a nation right now? Like, if someone told me that, I'd be panicked at 25. I was not one of those guys It's like, I'm going to take on the world. I'm like, I, I don't know. I have a clue what I'm doing. You know what I mean? And then it says... He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Jotham didn't have that long of a reign. Why? Did he do something bad? No, nope. He just died young. It happens. Well, then why serve God? It's not very pragmatic. If I'm not going to live a long time, then why serve God? Because his 16 years mattered a lot more than the evil kings that reigned for 40. His 16 years had a greater impact than... And some of us who have been around, my sister was that way. She died at 42, and I think about all the time the impact that she had, and I always look at my own life and think, I don't know that I've had a bigger impact than she has yet. At her funeral, there were over 20 pastors at her funeral. The two mayoral candidates of the city that she passed away in would not debate each other because they hate each other so badly, and they both came to the funeral. It was the only place they were together before the election. My sister never worked beyond the Kroger Deli. That was her full-time job her whole life. The manager of the Kroger Deli. But you know what's great? She told me, she was. you know what's great about working in the deli? I get to serve the homeless and I get to make cakes for the mayor. I can share the gospel with such a broad width of, and, and, and of people by working here. Oh, man, I wish that was my heart. So, yeah, my sister had a short burn, but, man, did she have an impact. An impact that's still happening as we tell the stories about her. Was she perfect? Nope, she was a mess. But God used it. It goes on in Kings 16, it says, In the seventh year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, son of Jotham, became king of Judah. In 2 Chronicles 28.1, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. This is Jotham's son. He did not do what was right in the Lord's sight like his ancestor David, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That means he was worshiping wrongly two golden calves and made cast images of the Baals. That's the false gods who, so not only did he like the two bulls that Israel made, but then he made a Baal bull. So he had more bulls. And then he burned incense in the valley of Hinnan and burned his children in the fire. He literally practiced child sacrifice with his sons. To the God of Molech, burned them. The God of Molech was also a cow with open arms saying bring me your children and he took his son right to those open arms he threw off the restraints that god told him to had and did not endure but he wavered and gave his son to death for a foreign wicked god it said he init- he uh, imitated the detestable practices of the nations the lord had disposed before the israelites he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places on the hills and under every green tree again this guy was super religious. Probably no king of Judah more religious than Ahaz. We got the temple. Now we got two Baal. Now we got the two Israel golden calves. Now we got ba- I'm just trying to get along with everybody. I sacrificed my son to Molech. I, see, I love everybody. I just want to get along with everybody. Can't we just all be one big happy family? That's Ahaz. It goes on. He wasn't supposed to make any sacrifices, that was the job of the priests. Second Kings goes on to say, then Aram, king of Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Ramaliah, came to wage war against Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 28.5, so the Lord, his God, handed Ahaz over to the king of Aram. He attacked him and took many captives to Damascus. Ahaz was also handed over to the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. Pekah, son of Ramaliah, killed 120,000 in Judah in one day, all brave men. I love how God says all brave men. He's like, just so you don't think these guys like were irresponsible and unprepared, these were the bravest warriors of Judah and they were slaughtered because it doesn't matter how brave or manly or confident you are. If you don't have God, you're dead. It's over. So he literally puts all these 120,000 really strong, awesome soldier, brave men slaughtered. Why? Because they wouldn't listen to God. You can can think you're as brave as you want. You can be as confident as you want. And you can be really wrong in your bravery and really wrong in your confidence. He goes on. He says this. Why? Because they had abandoned the Lord God of their ancestors. The reason these men died was not because of somebody else's sin. It wasn't because God's mean sitting in heaven. He's like, what else am I supposed to do? I'm not going to bless this. And so, this is what happens. How else? Listen, God can't get your attention unless He does stuff or allows stuff to happen to you. Most of you would not be in church today if there weren't terrible things that happened to you that have drawn you to church today. If things were going great, you wouldn't be here. You'd be on a beach somewhere, you you wouldn't be here this morning. But because there have been things that you don't know how to not waver or when to throw off restraint, you're trying to go places to find information. You haven't got rid of God. You're trying to figure this out. That's why you're here. You haven't abandoned the Lord. You're trying to figure this out. But there's a lot of people out there who have deconstructed their faith and they've abandoned God and they're creating their own churches and their house churches and all kinds of stuff on their own thinking that we're brave, we're confident, this is what we're going to do. And some of them may actually be righteous. I don't know. I don't know all of them personally. But I think a lot of them, they've thrown off restraint because they just don't want to be told what to do. That's a hard thing to wrestle with in your life, to deal with. It goes on and says, an Ephraimite warrior named Zikri killed the king's son, Messiah, or Masiah, Azrakim, governor of the palace, and Elkanah, who was second to the king. Then the Israelites took 200,000 captives from their brothers, women, sons, and daughters. They've killed 120,000 people, and now they have 200,000 people they're marching with, taking them from the southern kingdom of the north. They're marching them. You are not to enslave. That's an Old Testament law, is you do not enslave your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's in the law. You don't, you don't do this. I wonder if they were asking, God, where are you? Why don't don't you keep your promise? Do you even love us? Look at the mess we're in. We're being led away. I'm sure there was a lot of blaming, God. My husband's been killed in battle, and it's your fault. But did any of them pause to question why? I mean, God lays it out why. Well, the reason this has all happened is because you've thrown off restraint when you shouldn't have, and you've wavered when you shouldn't have goes on and says this in Chronicles, they also took a great deal of plunder from them and brought it to Samaria. Look at this. A prophet of the Lord named Obed was there. He went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them. So remember, they're traveling from Judah to Samaria. Look, the Lord, your God of of your ancestors handed them over to you because of his wrath against Judah, but you slaughtered them in a rage and that has reached heaven. In other words, you think you did a great job killing 120,000 and taking 200,000 captives, and God's really ticked at you. I don't know about you, but if I'm a prophet, I don't know if it's a good idea to stand up to a whole army of people who just killed 120,000 people and have 200,000 hostages. I think I'd be like, well, that's unfortunate, but I'm gonna stay here in my house. I'm warm, got some food, we're good right? Everything's fine. I might tell a few people on the side, pull them over. You probably shouldn't have done that. Just, just letting you know. But to go out and confront the leaders in the army. Okay. That's, that's pretty amazing. You know, what's crazy is as a pastor, as pastors, when, when we warn people, it's always amazing to me that we try to do it from the word of God. Obed is telling them, you know what you did from God's word is wrong. You know, this is wrong. You're not to slaughter your brothers and sisters. You're not to lead them into captivity. Sure, you can let them go down the road and destroy themselves. Like, okay, go do that. That's fine, but it's not going to go well for you. But it's not your job to take that into your hands, he says. And so you can warn people. You can tell people the history. You can tell them where they're going. But it's so amazing to me that when I watch people end up exactly where we kind of counsel or warn them, I never have pride in that. I try desperately not to have pride. I always, my heart just breaks. I I wish you would have listened. Makes me really sad. It it just, it breaks my heart. It's not a pride issue. If I'm right and you're wrong, Obed's not doing that. He's just like, this, we can't do this. It goes on and says, so some of the men who are leaders of the Ephraimites, Azariah, son of Jehonan, Berechiah, son of Mishilamoth, Jezekiah, son of Shalom, and Amasa, son of Hadali stood in opposition to those coming from the war. They said to them, you must not bring the captives here, for you plan to bring guilt on us from the Lord and add to our sins and our guilt, for we have much guilt and burning anger is on Israel. Okay, these guys are cool. Obed, Obed's the one. This is like standing up in your classroom and hoping somebody else speaks with you, right? Like he stands up to say, we shouldn't do this. And by golly, there are some leaders that are like, you know, we're not proud of what what we've done. We know we're not worshiping Yahweh. Man, thank you for saying that. We're with Obed. There were other prophets who prophesied and they just got killed. Like they didn't get anybody else's help. They just, boom, done. And then we got their words to say, and they killed the prophet and that was wrong. (laughs) Obed gets some help here from some leaders, but he had to be the one that stood up and said, I'm not wavering. You cannot throw off this kind of restraint. You cannot put restraints on your brothers and sisters. It says, the army left the captives and the plunder in the presence of the officers and the congregation. What? They left it? They left the plunder? I mean, sure, you can leave the people, be like, I'm taking the gold though. Like, no, they leave it all. This is an incredible act of repentance. They throw off what they've earned. We won the war. God abandoned them. We got their stuff. Don't tell me to get rid of it. Nope, throw it off. It's not yours. It's the Lord's. They do it. And then it says, then the men who are designated by name took charge of the captives and provided clothes for their naked ones from the plunder. This is a moment of incredible grace and mercy of God that God's judgment is there, but then his mercy is there. A boldness. This is incredible. It goes on to say they clothed them and gave them sandals, food, and drink. They dressed their wounds and provided donkeys for all the feeble. The Israelites brought them to Jericho, the city of Palms, among their brothers. Then they returned to Samaria. There's a story that you may have forgotten about in the New Testament about a guy that was traveling from Jerusalem, the city where they just plundered and killed to Samaria, to Jericho. It's in Luke 10. And right before this story that Jesus tells of the good Samaritan, because these were all Samaritans who helped these Judeans, and the Samaritans and Judeans hated each other because of the northern and southern conflict, look at this, Jesus sends out 70 workers to go out. Those 70, he tells, when you go, they're going to be towns that are woe to you towns. These towns are not going to respond to you. They're not going to listen to your message. There'll be some that do. The 70 then come back and tell him about all the wins they accomplish. They're casting out demons. People are, I mean, it's just crazy stuff is happening, right? And Jesus responds, look, don't rejoice that the Spirit submitted to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Why are you so excited about pragmatic, theistic moral deism? Why aren't you excited that there's a God who loves you and your name is written in heaven and you were supposed to go out and tell people that they needed to repent so their name would be written in heaven and instead you went out and got all excited about miracles? All the stuff you pragmatically fixed supernaturally, you're coming back and telling those stories and Jesus is like, well, what about all the people whose names are in heaven now because of you going out? Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. Then he says, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, the eyes that see the things you see are blessed. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things that you see. These prophets, Obed, these kings, they wanted to see this, yet didn't see the Messiah, to hear the things you hear, yet didn't hear them. We as Christians, because of the New Testament, get to hear and see things that 1 and 2 Kings, 2 Kings and Second, First and Second Chronicles would have loved to see the actual Messiah. And we've gotten to see it. It's amazing. Don't waver from that message. Just then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get my name written in the, in the book? He says, what's written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? That is the best question. How do you read the Bible? For pragmatic, moral, theistic deism? Or do you read the Bible for the heart of God? Do you read the Bible to know that he loves you and his promises are true and he wants you to know him? How do you read it? And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the Ten Commandments. The first four about loving God, and the next six are about, loving people. So this guy answers correctly. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Notice he doesn't say live eternally. He just says live. Then he goes on, it says, but wanting to justify himself because he knew he hasn't measured up to that standard. This guy's like, I, I can't measure up to loving God all the time and loving people. Look at this. He asks Jesus, well, but, but who's my neighbor? We do this all the time. This is how, whenever you're having conversations with people and you hit a, when you hit a, like a moment with them, when it zings them, they always come back with some theological crazy smokescreen, right? Well, what about Jesus being God? I don't know about that. Well, we're just talking about the affair you had. Like now we're talking about Jesus not being God. Like, yep, there's the smokescreen every time. It goes on and it said, Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, ooh, those Samaritans, the ones that killed 120,000 and led 200,000 away, look at this, on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Like Obed, like these leaders. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil on olive oil and wine. He put him on his own donkey, on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Does it? Did we just not read this story? The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, here's all the plunder back, right? Take care of him and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever you spend. By the way, Jesus in this story is most likely the Samaritan. He's saying, I'll pay the price, and I'll pay it all the way to the end. You were trying to figure out how to justify yourself not to care for the Samaritan, not to care, like to pass by as a Levite or a priest, because you're busy and there's stuff you got to do. Jesus says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers, he asked. The one who showed him mercy, showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. And you can't do that without the power of God. You you can't have that kind of mercy on your own. You you can't do this without surrendering to Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to come in. Kings goes on to say, they besieged Ahaz, but were not able to conquer him. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram and expelled the Judahites from Elath. Then the Arameans came to Elath and they lived there until today. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileazar, king of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. March up and save me from the power of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. He surrenders. He, he, instead of enduring the punishment, what does he do? He throws off restraint and goes to a foreign god and a foreign dictator and says, how about we make a deal? Because I don't like the results I'm getting from my God. I don't like the results he's giving to me, so I got to go out and find a deal. And he even says, I'm not God's son anymore. I'm yours. Some of you may have done that in your life, where you've traded the greatest offering in the world to be a child of God, to be a child of people who really don't care about you. Ahaz also took the silver and gold found in the Lord's temple, so now he's stealing from God and in the treasuries of the king's palace and sent them to the king of Assyria as a gift. The king of Assyria didn't even ask for this, and he's sending it, trying to woo him, right? Look at what happens. So the king of Assyria listened to him and marched up to Damascus, Damascus and captured it. He deported its people to Kerr and put resin to death. It worked. Must have been God's will. Praise the Lord. We're saved. That was a close one. Well, I thought I thought, we were gonna, I thought I was losing to lose my kingdom and lose Jerusalem. And because I asked the Assyrian king to come in, it's well, I'm, I'm good now. I'm, I, and I managed that pretty well. I've... The Edomites came again, attacked Judah, and took captives. Philistines also raided the cities of Judea and foothills and the Negev of Judah and captured Beth Shemesh, Agalon, uh, Jedaroth, Sacco, and its villages, Timnah and its villages, Gimzo, I always want to say gizmo there because of the you know. Um, anyway, so that's not it. And it's villages, and they live there. For the Lord humbled Judah because of the because of King A has of Judah who threw off restraint. There it is. He threw off restraint in Judah and was unfaithful to the Lord. So you have his son that that did not waver, did not waver and obeyed. And now and now this son, so his dad who didn't throw off. Now you have the son who throws off off restraint and decides to be unfaithful. It goes on. King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet with Tiglath-Pileazar, king of Assyria. When he saw the altar that was in Damascus, man, we got to make the church more like Disney World. King Ahaz sent a model of the altar and complete plans for its construction to Uriah the priest. See, the problem, the reason we're not reaching people is because we're not relevant to the world, and so we need to become more relevant. we got to become more like the world if we're going to get people to come to church. I mean, forget the fact that we have the most powerful words ever spoken and we actually have the God of the universe and the Savior of the world at our disposal and the power of the Holy Spirit as a believer that lives in us. No, 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 no. We need all the other stuff. Sound familiar? I mean, it's the same stuff over and over again. And we fall for it. And we pay for it. And we go with it. Look at what he says. And Uriah the priest goes with it. He doesn't even stand up to him like, we're not doing this. Uriah's like, that sounds like a great idea. Uriah built the altar according to all the instructions King Ahaz sent back from Damascus. Therefore, by the time King Ahaz came back from Damascus, Uriah the priest had completed it. When the king came back from Damascus, he saw the altar, then he approached the altar and ascended it. That's, you don't do this as a king. Then he offered his burnt offering, his grain offering, poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar, which is exactly the the pattern of the offerings in Leviticus. King Ahaz is literally sticking it in the face of God and saying, you think you're God, you think your ways are right, you think I'm going to obey. Obey you, Nope, I'm going to take your grain offering, your fellowship offering. I'm going to show you, buddy. I'm even going to sprinkle the blood on my altar that's supposed to be sprinkled on yours. Because you didn't work for me. You didn't make me feel good. He took the bronze altar that was before the Lord in front of the temple, between his altar and the Lord's temple, and put it on the north side of his altar. How God didn't strike him dead, I don't know. God is patient. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, Offer the, the great altar the morning burnt offering. Again, these are the offerings of the Old Testament. The evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering. Also offer the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offering. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood sacrifice, blood of sacrifice. The bronze altar will be for me to seek guidance. I don't care what God has to say. It hasn't worked for me. I'm tired of this. So I'm going to find a different way to seek guidance. I'm going to keep getting more and more education until I know more than anybody else. That's going to be my guidance. Education's not wrong, but what are you being guided by? And then it says, Uriah the priest did everything King Ahaz has commanded. Can you imagine? The priests are involved in this. He doesn't stand up and be like, Obed's standing up, saying, don't do this. Uriah's going right along with it, because it, it helps his pocketbook. He's his favorite priest in Israel, or in Judah. I got the king's favor. Then King Ahaz cut off the frames of the water carts and removed the bronze basin from each of them. He took the reservoir from the bronze oven oxen that were under it and put it on, a stone, on stone pavement. You weren't supposed to do that. To satisfy the king of Assyria, he removed from the Lord's temple the Sabbath canopy They had built in the palace, and he closed the outer entrance for the king. Now the king of Assyria says, get rid of your God. And Ahaz happily does it. Then Ahaz gathered up all the utensils of the Lord's temple, cut them into pieces, shut the doors of the Lord's temple, and made himself altars on every street corner in Jerusalem. He made high places in every city of Judah to offer incense to other gods, and he provoked the Lord, the God of his ancestors. And this is what we still do today. If I hear one more person write a book on how to deconstructing your faith, I'm going to pull my hair out. Because there's all kinds of books about people deconstructing their faith. They deconstru- Ahaz did a better job of deconstructing the faith than any other person ever that we know of in the Bible. And it still didn't work well for him. Like, and the reason he deconstructed his faith is because it wasn't working the way he wanted if you go on in Chronicles, it says, then Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against Ahaz. He opposed him and did not give him support. Although Ahaz plundered the Lord's temple and the palace of the king and of the rulers and gave the plunder to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. We always think this is gonna work out. I got it planned. This is gonna work. I'm gonna do... And the person we are trusting in, that thing we are trusting in, turns on us. We were warned all along. And now we're sitting in our mess. And you got to make a decision when you're sitting in the mess. And Ahaz makes the wrong one. At the time of his distress, King Ahaz himself became more unfaithful to the Lord. He could have repented. He could have said, I'm sorry. God would have forgiven him, which we'll see with Hezekiah he does. Like, he could have done any of that. And instead he says, I'm doubling down on this stupid God, his stupid people. I'm going after it. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. He said, since the gods of the kings of Aram are helping them, there it is, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me, but they were actually the downfall of him and all of Israel. Psalm says this, where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Is that where your help comes from? Are you looking for some other help? In 17, it says, in the 12th year of Judah King Ahaz, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned nine years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. He wasn't quite as evil as the rest of them. As for the rest of his deeds and his ways from beginning to end, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel because of how wicked he was. And his son Hezekiah became king in his place." Shalem king of Assyria, attacked him, and Hosea, this is the northern kingdom now, became his vassal and paid him tribute money. But the king of Assyria discovered Hosea's conspiracy. He sent envoys to the So, king of Egypt, and had not paid the tribute money to the king of Assyria as in previous years. Therefore, the king of Assyria arrested him and put him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land, marched up to Samaria, and besieged it for three years. That means he didn't let any goods come in and out for three years. He starved and killed the people. For three years, burn their crops and starve them till they surrendered or died. Why? God told his people to never make a treaty ever again with Egypt. If you go back to Egypt, it's over for you. He told them that when he delivered them from Egypt and they went back to the vomit that they came from. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Look at this. It was over. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Hala and by the Haber, Gozans River, and in the cities of the Medes. It's over for him. The nation's gone, it's collapsed. I wonder where we're headed as a people and a nation. I know where we might be headed. But I also know where I'm headed because I know who Jesus is. And this isn't my nation. My nation is in heaven. Trump and Biden aren't my king. Jesus is my king. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem and a new reign, and I can't wait for that day. But right now, I got to figure out how not to waver and when to throw off and when to put on the restraints. In Luke, As we finish, it says this, at that time, some people came and reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. He responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. In other words, we can look at all these kings, we can look at all the people who have done wicked, but it boils down to your heart before the God of the universe and my heart before the God of the universe. That always boils down to that. And Paul tells us this, for the message of the cross, surrender, giving our life is foolish. It makes no pragmatic, theistic, moral, deistic sense to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to those who are being saved. I hope this morning helps you to know how to not waver. I hope this morning you'll see that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, that in God's sight you can be forgiven, restored, that all the mess can be gone, wiped clean, separated as far as the east is from the west. You may still have to live with the consequences because that's the way the world is. But in the Lord's sight, he says he wants you to be his child. He says he wants you to surrender. He gives us all these warnings of these kings and everything in his word because he is saying to us, listen, you got to know, don't waver on who I am. Don't waver on what I've done. Don't waver on what I'm going to accomplish. And don't throw off the wrong restraints. And you know what? Put on the restraint of the cross so that you can be saved and others can see that that's the way to salvation man, that is a message we should be excited about. That's a message that we should go out and tell people every day of our lives because we have such a good, patient God that should have wiped us out a long time ago and he's still like, I'm trying to get you to see who I am. I'm trying to get you to see who you are. I'm trying to get you to see how the world works so that you can wait on me, the Messiah. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, I thank you for how you give us a picture so clearly of the same processes that happen over and over again this is nothing new human hearts haven't changed our relationship with you and the things that when we should endure we don't and the way that we give up that they're all here you you warn us over and over and over because you love us so much And you're just looking for an Obed. You're looking for some leaders who will listen and then respond by surrendering to what's true about you and what you say is true about us. Father, I pray that if anyone here this morning doesn't understand who they are in your sight, in your eyes, that they would understand that Jesus, you came to pay the price because we deserve everything we read this morning. But you said you would take that penalty on yourself so that we don't have to be afraid and know that you love us and we can stand before you in our sight, in your sight, not because of all the good things we've done, but because you paid the price we deserve. Man, what a message. And Lord, thank you for your word that helps us to make sense of the world, that helps us to know when to throw off restraint, when to put on the restraints, when to not waver, and when we should waver and move on. Lord, your word is so good. And thank you for your church, not just this church, but Lord, your people that want to know the truth, that have not been like Uriah the priest and not been like Ahaz and these kings, but have really said, God, we want to obey you. Lord, thank you for those faithful servants. And so Lord, if anyone here doesn't know you, I pray this morning they would surrender. They would understand that you've paid the price and they would say, I, I'm sorry, God. I surrender and I don't even know what that means, but I, I, I want you. And if they do that, your word says that you will come into them. You will make your home with them and you'll give them a family, a church body that will help them understand what that means the rest of their life. Lord, for those of us who are believers, help us to know the difference between wavering and putting on restraints. We pray in your name, amen.